0: Are the kids all right? That's my glib question that we're going to use to title this episode, because this is the episode we want to do on veterans in education, um, how veterans intersect with the educational realm, uh, how they impact it, how education impacts veterans. Um, obviously, this is an issue that is near and dear to Charlie's heart. Uh, Charlie you know, teaches at West Point, so this is something he deals with seven days a week. Uh, we brought in Jeff Marshburn, who had a very um, well-respected uh, career at West Point as an instructor. He had a well-respected career outside of West Point, I should stipulate, but certainly at West Point, uh, he was he made a lot of uh, you know had a huge impact on a lot of people's lives there. So um, it made sense to bring uh, Charlie and Jeff on for that subject. I'm glad we did. I didn't want it being that both of them taught at West Point. I didn't want it to be a West Point infomercial. Uh, it was and it didn't become one. Uh, we talk about West Point a bit at the end but uh because how could we not West Point's a you know fascinating insular kind of community that a lot of people even in the Army don't really know understand or care about <laughs> and they should so it was uh you know Jeff brought up a lot of context about West Point the history of West Point the um, purpose of West Point I thought was really interesting and I won't spoil that here you guys can listen and find that out for yourselves. Um, so it doesn't become a West point infomercial, but there was no way we were going to ignore West point, especially because Charlie showed up with this big gaudy army Jersey with the word army, you know, emblazoned on it. And that had to stare back at me across my, through my screen, the entire episode, uh, because he and Jeff were going to the West point Miami of Ohio game later today. And I'm recording this before the outcome of the game. So I don't know if Charlie ended up burning his Jersey or if it's, Flying proudly on a flagpole outside of his house right now, but either way, um, I had to look at that jersey the entire time, and it seemed incredibly, uh, partisan army, uh, propaganda that I had to look at the whole time, um, which is fine. I mean, I was army, and I appreciate that, but it was, uh, but it, it, I felt the impulse, I felt the the pull to uh, talk about West Point more and more throughout the episode as that jersey's influence weighed on me throughout the course of the hour. But anyway, I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. It has a lot of stuff in there um, for how veterans need to mentally approach the educational atmosphere, the cultural cognitive dissonance that veterans have uh, in academia, and um, what academia can learn from veterans and some of the the pitfalls that we've seen uh, in that experience. Anyway, I think it's going to be enjoyable. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is The Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Try to make a little order out of chaos. Jeff Marshburn enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1989. He was selected for Special Forces in 1992, and after uh, the qualification course, he was assigned to fifth group, but he left active duty in 1998, worked in South Central L.A. as part of the LAPD, and then re-enlisted after 9-11 and was assigned to 3rd Special Forces Group. Then he attended OCS in 2004, was appointed an infantry officer, and commanded two companies in the 82nd Airborne before attending Columbia University and serving as a tactical officer and regimental XO at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He retired from the Army in 2016, has been working in East Texas law enforcement since then, and has combat deployments to Africa, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Jeff, welcome back to the show.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to be here as always, and uh, just happy to have not be. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Happy to not have the opportunity to be called out on a <laughs> high priority call this time. Since last time, this was filmed from the cab of my patrol car.
0: That's right. That's right. And uh, Jeff and I talked before the show. In case anybody's worried, he does have. A vintage flintlock pistol and musket right behind him, though. (laughs) So if anything breaks out in or around the West Point area today, he is ready for it. So everybody can rest easy. Charlie Faint is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He's the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments, in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea, three master's degrees, Currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and of course owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie.
2: Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me back, and really excited to be here with my my longtime friend Jeff Marshburn. Yeah,
0: like I told you, I feel like we haven't talked in a while, uh, so I, I feel like you and I haven't been on this show together in a minute. So it, it felt good to like give your intro, your bio again. I felt like I'd lost a little bit of that muscle memory of saying all the Charlie faint bullet points. <laughs> Well, so I felt really natural and good.
2: Good, good. Yeah, it's it's been it has been a minute, but you've been putting out some really great content. It, I don't I don't think I want to be on the show with guys like like Marshall McGurk and those folks. It, it, really great uh great thoughts and it's hard to follow up on acts like that.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean we we I think we I have never seen a time where you've detracted from it, but we can. I'm sure we can stay in the congratulatory feedback loop for a while. But yeah, it's been good. We've de- and definitely there's been a lot of stuff uh, to push out. Certainly the topical stuff, Afghanistan, what have you. That's all been front burner stuff. I'm glad we could cover that. Obviously, this week uh, we wanted to talk about something different, and I think if Charlie, if I had to pick two of the recurring themes that we always kind of come back to on this show. Uh, that you and I have talked about. One is the Civ Mill Divide, that we're constantly referencing it. We have shows sometimes dedicated to it, but it's never far from our thoughts. The other is kind of the movement to have veterans write more. And you and I have talked about that, certainly in the context of kind of art therapy, getting vets to write, get their thoughts out, feel better about themselves, unpack their experiences a little bit. But we've also talked about it the value of the writing to pass along those experiences to others and especially to the civilian community. Again, dovetailing back in that Civ mill divide today, our subject really is about, I would say maybe even even more important aspect of the Civ mill divide, which is passing along your experiences through education and through what veterans participating in the education process does to bridge that gap and to, um, I guess ring the most benefit out of a veteran's experience in a way that means something to the civilian population. So the veteran's experiences um, don't simply end with them and uh, and can actually be shared, appreciated and learned from. Is that a fair assessment, Charlie? Am I, am I hitting this right? Does that seem like a good take on this to you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and for this show, you know, talking about veterans and higher education, and not only the benefit to civ Mill to the civilian community for being exposed to vets, but also vets being reintroduced to civilians because that's what we live among when we get out of the uniform, and that's the majority of the country. So, getting getting into college at whatever level, from community college up to PhD work, whatever you're into, uh, that that's that's great for vets and for the the country, Chris. So, Jeff.
0: You know, we talk – when Charlie and I have talked in the past about writing and about the value of veterans writing, we've always been very liberal with that. We've said, hey, all veterans should write. Um, you need to get your experiences out even if it's just for yourself. Does that hold true for education as well? Should all veterans make an effort to participate in some way, shape, or form in civilian education programs? Um to contribute, to teach, to just have some degree of input in them, or should really only people that are primed and and ready to actually message be involved in that? So i I think that's a good uh, that's
1: a good way to think about it. I think that veterans being involved in the educational process at every point that they can insert themselves is crucial. Not everybody is going to be a PhD candidate. Not everybody is going to go. To an Ivy League school, not everybody is going to get into West Point. But, you know, here at West Point, for instance, um, my TAC officer or my TAC NCOs and the NCOs that that work here are kind of the unsung heroes. And a lot of them aren't college educated. You know, they're 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 solid, some of the salt of the earth kind of people, but they have they are in the educational process because they are teaching. And so they show up here to West Point and they are among the top percentage of all college applicants in the country or in the world, maybe. And they're teaching these these young leaders amazing lessons every single day. So, you know, if a veteran's out there and they're a, a, a coach at a high school or a coach at a middle school or something like that, they're teaching. Um, so I think when you broaden the scope of, of being involved in education to not just sitting in the classroom, um, I think, yeah, absolutely. We can sit back and we can complain about all of the current state of education, you know, the different theories and things going on in the classroom that we either agree or don't agree with, and and you know, pushing of political agendas and all this kind of stuff. Um, but if we're going to just sit on the sideline and do nothing, does that really, does that really activate our um, status as as veterans? I mean, as, as as veterans, I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to be that voice of reason when. Uh, political ideologies are kind of going crazy, you know, because we've seen the end result of failed political ideologies. We've seen the end result of bad policy decisions and everything else. And so if we're not educating, um, if we're not helping educate and we're not part of that process, again, whether you're sitting in the classroom being a student or being a teacher or just being involved, you know, ancillary to to the education, I think we're failing.
0: So Jeff, I'm going to, you you started to answer this next question already, but I'm just going to Underscore it here. What is, what really is the purpose of us pushing veterans into education? What makes a veteran so special in the educational realm? You can't, can you honestly sit there and say that a 25 year old who did a couple of years in the 82nd, maybe a deployment or two, what do they have to contribute in the educational atmosphere that is so damn important um, besides just some war stories here and there? And obviously I'm taking a devil's advocate viewpoint, but w- what, can you just pitch people on what's the value of the veteran in that, in the educational uh, realm?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I can do that from firsthand experience. So um, when I was a young captain in the army. Um, I got selected for a program that brought me here to West Point that ended up with me and a cohort of about 25 um, army officers going to Columbia University, which to be honest, I never would have gotten there on my own had it not been for the army. Um, But we're sitting in this classroom with, you know, when you're at Columbia, it's an Ivy League school, right? It's it's a top tier education. And we're sitting there and we had um, uh, one of the Generals, I don't remember the, the general name. It might have been General Perkins, but anyway, come down from TRADOC and start talking to us about why we were there. You know, and one of the things that that stood out was we were there to obviously to to get a world class education, but two, we were there to interact with students that, when you think of Columbia, I mean, we've had presidents that have come from Columbia, we've had general officers come from Columbia. I mean, these are these are people who may never. Have contact with military personnel, and then all of a sudden they're a senator or they're a CEO and sure. they're trying to bid contracts with with the DoD and so their contact with us there becomes crucial because they can look back at that time and and say, "Okay well, I knew these guys then." The other piece, and this is a this occurred during that same year year at Columbia is we would do exercises where we would talk about conflict negotiation or conflict resolution. And I'd listen to these, you know, again, you're talking 25 year old students, 25 year old students talk about the worst conflict resolution they've had to do is how to tell a roommate that they're not getting along and it's time for them to go live somewhere brutal. else, you know, brutal
0: life. yeah. And in yeah.
1: this, and in this, in the same token, we would have tw- a 25 or 26 year old person that just got out of command in the army talk about. Well, yeah. The worst conflict I had to deal with was how do I get Afghan farmers to stop growing poppies and start growing watermelons? Because the State Department has told us that we want them to grow watermelons instead of poppy. And when you think of the 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 kids in that—I say kids, sure. but the the students in that class that are all the same age and the experience level, um, the 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 ability for a 25-year-old, like you're saying, a 25-year-old student and we could take this down to a 25 year old non college educated nco that comes out gets out of the army and starts college right they have those same experiences and they're bringing that breadth of experience into the classroom and one of the one of the greatest things that we do in a classroom is we learn from experience not necessarily yeah. from opening a yeah. book right the book the book mm-hmm. gives us foundation but when a student can sit in class and go oh yeah you know what i've i've had to deal with this level of of conflict and this level of problem solving. It's completely changed the the dynamic in the classroom. And you're not going to get that anywhere else because in no other industry in the world, do we put 22, 23 year old kids in charge of four or five other kids and put them out on a corner in Afghanistan or Iraq and say, Hey, make this place better. I'll come back and check on you in six hours.
0: It also makes you, I think, a more motivated learner because you've seen what the extent of whatever your education has been up to that point hit a brick wall in your experience, right? So it's like, hey, I thought I knew a bunch of stuff. I went to high school, maybe a little college. I hit a brick wall in in real life with real life experiences. Now I'm blessed and privileged to be back in an educational atmosphere. And I know exactly what I need to pull out of this to make myself better for the next set of problems that I run into, right?
1: Yeah, it definitely makes you um appreciate what you have. I mean, and, and our deployments, I think, as military members, our deployments really make you take that that look back at the United States and the opportunities we have for for education. I mean, we're talking about it in Afghanistan right yeah. now, you know, how how schools are being closed off to women and, and we did such great work at at being inclusive in the educational system in that country and really turning it around from, you know, a very male dominated um Society into a more inclusive society. Now we're talking about, oh, great! Now, now these women can't even get basic education because they're the politi- again. The political and religious ideology doesn't allow it. So, you know, um, military members can truly walk into a classroom and speak from personal experience about why those freedoms are so crucial and why freedom of thought and freedom of expression and the ability to um, to view experiences through different lenses is so important. Yeah.
0: Charlie, uh, um, certainly anything you want to add to that, by all means do. But I also want to throw in there uh, kind of something that Jeff was setting the table for just now, which is the kind of almost implicit pro-American viewpoint that a military member is going to have. And I don't mean that they're necessarily all veterans are rah-rah go America, but I do think – most veterans, especially if you've deployed, by comparison can see how you can have a very visceral understanding of the comparative advantages of living in America and by and, and therefore are, are inherently pro-American. Um, and it kind of puts, let's say, academic problems into a bit of a context because you kind of know what real problems look like,
2: right? Absolutely. And I think it was Mark Twain that made a comment about Travel being fatal to prejudice. I think travel outside the country tends to be fatal to anti-Americanism because we do have problems in this country. Everybody knows it. But you don't realize how good this country is until you lived. I'm not talking like in France or something like that. It's a very developed country or Canada, which is basically United States light. But if you've been to Afghanistan, been to Iraq, you've been to some of these places where we go, you get your eyes opened. And I think that's one of the, the contributing factors that makes vets tend to be better students, especially at the undergrad level, because they tend to be more motiv- motivated. They tend to be more experienced. They tend to be more accepting. And they tend to just get in and want to want to work. So I remember one of my, my undergrad vet friends when I was in grad school told me that, uh, where's the effect of there are a lot of people here that are smarter than me, but no one's going to work harder. So yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that vets tend to be, as a group, better students, especially in the undergrad level. But yeah, yeah, I think you, you get some folks that have traveled outside the country and seen what the rest of the world is actually like and how much the rest of the world loves America. I was thinking about the the family who was unfortunately killed in that errant drone strike. Um, you know what they're asking for? They want to come here. Yeah. That's what they want to do. We just killed 10 of their, their family members in just terrible tragedy. And they still want to come to America. And I think a lot of Americans just don't appreciate that because they don't have any basis for comparisons.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I, um, while we were talking about this and about the value that vets can bring to the classroom, even as students, uh, I was thinking about vets I knew that went back to college after maybe their first enlistment contract was up. And I was just thinking about a couple of guys that had been pretty vocal, that they had really been disillusioned by going back to college and being in that environment again, that they were strangers in a strange land again. And there was that um, – sense of cognitive dissonance where everything looked familiar, but nothing was was sinking in. And whatever they were putting out wasn't finding a, a, a real home. It wasn't really hitting the mark. And they just felt at odds with that environment. There's a lot of ways we can take that. But Jeff, let me ask you first, what is a vet's responsibility when they come back to college, I don't want to make vets veteran uh, uh, victims and say, oh, poor them. The colleges need to learn how to treat vets better. But what can a vet do? What should a vet's level of expectation be? And what should be their mindset going back into the academic environment?
1: Man, so I think that that their mindset should be that they are on unfamiliar ground. You know, um, the military by by just the way we do things is very um you know, I show you something, you do it, and then you repeat it, right? Um, Education is more, you know, it's, it's cerebral, it's, it's, you got to learn, you've got to read, you've got to write, you've got to do all these things that are, that for a, you know, a soldier might be very uncomfortable, because we don't require soldiers to read, write, you know, we require them to think, we require them to, you know, not that soldiers are dumb, they, they, so I probably said that wrong, but um, we don't, you know, there's, writing isn't necessarily a requirement unless you're an officer, right? right? And so now you're being asked to process ideas and synthesize ideas. And so, so the veterans have to understand that, that, that they are, they are in a foreign land. And if you're in any type of higher education college or anything like that, um, you're out of practice because, you know, kids go from high school into college and you're going to be the old man or old woman in the classroom and you're not as technologically savvy and, you haven't been doing it in a while so you so you got to brush off all those skills that you know are long forgotten and and they might have changed you know the way we do things you know whether it's ebooks or 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 content delivery or stuff is so different now than it was you know probably 5 years ago or 10 years ago or 15 sure. years ago and so so that, so they have to understand that but i think the other thing that has to be understood is that the there is some concession there should be some concession given to veterans because of again the value that they bring in to the classroom the value that they bring from a, from just a global perspective, many veterans, you know, whether you're an E4 or an O4, they're very savvy in the world and they understand um, geopolitics at a level that, that, you know, high school graduates going into a, you know, a traditional four-year school don't understand. And so, so they're, they're not going to be, they're not going to have the wool pulled over their eyes by, by professors who don't have the same world experience as they do. You know, we all, we all talk about the ivory tower. We talk about how education becomes a self-licking ice cream cone. You know, it's like you go to college, you get, you stay in college, you get a PhD and you start teaching and then, you know, your worldly experience is almost zero. Well, you got this young kid who's just yeah. done one enlistment, yeah. maybe maybe deployed once. I mean, man, they have a world of knowledge, and the other thing that they have is they have a spine and they have a backbone, and they're not going to be bullied. And I think a lot of professors out there, um, especially in today's environment, feel like they can bully people into to thinking a certain way because you know. W- we've all experienced or all seen or all read where colleges are are trying to manufacture thought processes and not really encouraging, you know, Socratic method and people sure. to understand and to think and to develop on their own. It's like professors have an agenda and that agenda comes from that circular kind of path where you stay in education, you go right back yep. into education. And and so the veteran, the typical veteran sitting in there is going to have a spine and a backbone and they are going to push back when they hear something that is either Wrong, prejudicial, or anything like that. It, 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 um, you know, when I was in Columbia, one of the things that they did is we had just reappealed "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" in the mm-hmm. military, right? And I had a professor that wanted to goad us into this yeah. horrible discussion on "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," and she she had written books huh. and she was very well right. known, and and she was just floored when all of us just didn't care. You know, like she she tried and tried and tried to to get us to you know be some you know Homophobic bunch of you know knuckle dragging conservative kind of thing. Like she had painted us to be in her mind, and at the end of the day, like none of us cared. None of us could care less. It was like, hey, yeah, that's the policy, and whatever. You know, can we continue business? And so, um, well, I think that I think that. that Sorry,
0: sorry, just to cut you up, but just to just to put a little spin on it. I mean, that's so. Talk to about that cultural. Um, dissonance that vets may find when should vets push back when should vets hold their fire you know uh because that's that is exactly what i was thinking of was guys that were just got so disillusioned that they were like look every day i go in there and you're saying stuff that i can prove to be wrong and i at a certain point it just becomes an issue of hey it's easier for me just to go home and read what i want to read and do what i want to do and not try to beat my head against a wall to Share what I, what I know and what my experiences have been. Is that the right answer? The wrong answer? I mean, how culturally should vets condition themselves to be in that environment?
1: Well, I don't think every vet has to, um, has to, you know, give, give it to academia with, with, with both barrels. Some are cut out for that. Some aren't, some don't want the fight. Sure um i think that i think that some may approach it and this is what i would encourage i think some may approach it as this is their next mission right their next mission is to sit in that classroom and to write papers and to challenge the things that they know to be wrong and um you know they may not win every battle but if they're if they are setting an example in a classroom where they hold their ground and they hold it not with emotion but with fact i think that that other people are 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 going to see that happen and it's going to be infectious and and um you know they may not win that battle but there may be one or two other people in that classroom that see that and go huh i never really thought about it like that and all of a sudden now they're thinking and then it, like i said it becomes yeah. you know general Petraeus talked about ink blot theory you yeah. know how you how you kind of change and you know develop an insurgency and it's the same kind of thing if we want to if we want to change education um I think veterans are the answer for a lot of things, right? And I think that education is one of those things that we have the answer for, not because we're smart, not because we're anything, but because we are going to approach things with brutal honesty and facts. And I think that you know, because of what we've seen and because of what we've done, we tend to operate more off fact than emotion. And that's a big um, threat a lot of times to the ivory tower that you encounter in
0: professional education. Charlie what is it that makes a veteran special? And again, I kind of asked that up front, but Jeff keeps bringing up, you know, the different qualities that veterans can bring to the classroom. And I think it's important just to really foot stomp this. Um, What in your mind makes a veteran have that special, what's the special sauce behind a veteran that really, um, that they should feel comfortable leveraging in an academic environment?
2: So I think the biggest thing that vets encounter in, in higher education, and it's certainly true of me and Jeff, maybe for you as well down at Columbia, but imposter syndrome is the biggest thing that's got to get past. So they get in these classrooms, it doesn't matter where it is, and they're like, man, I don't I don't belong here because we've got all these smart, high-achieving people. What they don't know is the people sitting there right and left are thinking the same thing about them. It's like, wow, I'm in I'm in class with this person who's served in the military, gone overseas, and things like that. And I think in addition to the stuff that we already talked about, one of the things that makes Vets attractive to schools, especially vets who are there on a program like Jeff and I were, or who are there for the the GI Bill, which is, in my opinion, one of the most generous things America's ever done for veterans, is vets have tend to have a deadline, they have funding, and they they often have a job on the back end. So especially in grad school, that's very attractive to programs who who have limited funding who are affected by people who don't graduate on time and who don't get get a job after. So vets tend to have those things going for them. But what I was thinking when Jeff was talking just now, Chris, is just like anything else, vets got to know where they are and they've got to pick their battles. Not every battle needs to be fought. Not every battle can be won right there in the classroom. And I think for me, it was understanding that the the battle is never against the irreconcilables, just like in Iraq or Afghanistan. You're never going to change the mind of the irreconcilable. so don't spend any time with them. The battle is for the malleable middle that you can influence at a veteran, as a veteran at any level. It doesn't have to be right there in the classroom. You spend a lot more time with your classmates than that professor ever will, so maybe you don't engage in the classroom, or maybe you don't engage as hard as you would when you're down eating dinner, or you're at a concert, or you're at a frat house, or whatever it is. And that's where you can make the difference. So I think that's somewhere that vets can can make yeah. it. Yeah, I
0: want to throw out a a, a symptom of academia that I've seen and you guys tell me if you've seen this, if this has been your experience or if there's anything you can relate to with this, but it seems to me, uh, when I meet someone from, it it seems to be academia, journalism, um, sometimes even just social contacts, but especially people that are professionally, um, involved in learning education, message, uh, dissemination, anything like that. There seems to be a desire Um, A a real uh, attraction to me as a service member, and a desire to kind of leverage my service in in favor of whatever their pet—I don't want to say ideology is, although it does have ideological uh, uh, symptoms—but but but whatever their pet cause is. So they'll say, "Oh, yeah, that's interesting." So yeah, so you just got back from Afghanistan? Okay, cool. You know, that's well. Then you would definitely understand why such and such, such bill is just terrible and 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 needs to be rejected or needs to be passed or why, or boy, I can't, if you thought that was bad, just wait till you see what's going on in Texas or whatever, you know, and, and, and I've noticed that that happens almost every single time I have contact with somebody in one of those lanes. And I want to ask you, Jeff, um, first, have you ever noticed that kind of tokenizing, of a service member's service and and trying to weaponize it in favor of a particular ideology. And, um, and if you have noticed that, uh, what are your thoughts on it? What are the dangers of it? Uh, what are the advantages to it? So, yeah, I, um,
1: at Columbia, we ran into that quite a bit, you know, we, um, like you're saying, everybody has their kind of pet project, pet ideology, and to get a veteran to side with it, becomes well the US military yeah. thinks you know yeah. and it's like no you know it's like no this is you know um right wrong or indifferent i think that one of the things that you find with a lot of veterans is that we um you know we we love our country and kind of fear our government kind of thing and so when you um when when you encounter discussions like that i think it's important to to be thoughtful about how how, how response is, you know, and, and like Charlie saying you can't, you can't, um, you can't win every battle and some battles aren't even, are, sure. aren't even worth, worth having, you know, some, somebody wants to talk to you about a hot button topic, you know, whether it's abortion or one of these other crazy, you know, just no one is ever going to be right kind right. of things. Then you have to just kind of like, you know what, we're going to talk about that some other time, or that's not something I'm really interested in or, you know, w- or whatever. Um, the, the. The crucial part on all this is the veteran has to stay true to, to their, to their belief and to their, um, you know, where they come from. And I think that, I think, I think that's important. Not all veterans are the same. Yeah. We've talked about this on the show yeah. before. And Chris, you've, you've talked about, you know, we have veterans that are ultra liberal and veterans that are ultra conservative and everything in the middle. So, you know, now granted we all get painted with a conservative brush and we all get painted with, you know, the, the, um, you know, all, all that goes, goes along with that, but that doesn't typify most veterans that typifies a very small, small percentage. And I think we just, at the end of the day, you got to be true to yourself and you've got to, like Charlie was saying, you've got to choose the battles that you're going to fight right there, right then. Um, otherwise, you know, you're going to, you're going to end up losing everything for nothing.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I, I remember, I I think this was I'm not gonna remember which book it was, but there was a book I read about Vietnam where uh the author, I think he was a LERP in Vietnam and he said uh something to the effect that, you know, he was, you know, busy. Obviously, he had a high op tempo and he was doing a lot of stuff day in, day out. And he's like, it really took me five or six years after I came back to the States to kind of figure out what was going on during that time. Both unpacking his experiences and then also reading and going, oh, that's what was going on. Oh, okay, because he didn't really, under, you know, he was looking at his very narrow aperture and he didn't see what the bigger picture was. And he needed, you know, like anybody would, uh, you you kind of need to get a bunch of different data points sometimes from outside your immediate experience to understand the context that you're operating in. It seems to me, Charlie, that that is also a place where veterans can either sell out their service. Or uh, really strengthen their understanding of their service in academia because you can find data points that might support that might support what you were doing, and you go, "Oh yeah, okay, cool. Now everything makes sense of what I was doing, why I was doing it, what what the mission set was that I was actually uh, contributing to." And then there's other things that might that might kind of a weaponize you in a different direction and make you go, you know, something. This is why America's just rotten, and this is because this is what we're doing. I saw this, and you've now and your military service has now been weaponized uh, almost against the uniform. Uh, does that make sense? Do you have you seen that? Is does that bear out in your experience as well?
2: Yeah, you actually brought up a point that I wanted to raise later on in the discussion regarding having time to process what you've been through. So I went to grad school, I think I was 40, and I deployed seven times by then and been in three different special operations units. And what I saw, particularly in Iraq, was what prompted me to take this path, get into higher education, go teach at West Point, et cetera, because of, because of what I saw, not on the battlefield, because I wasn't like Jeff. I wasn't out there hooking a jab, and jabbing. I, I was an intel guy, so I was fat and happy at the Burger King and the FOB. But seeing the the reports and dealing with the detainees and things like that, Uh, that made me uh, realize that there was a lot more going on. So I had time to process and think about Mm. and write about and just kind of settle in school in a way that I wouldn't have had if I had stayed operational. And the other point that you brought up that I wanted to raise as well is sometimes vets have an overinflated sense of what they know because they did one tour in Marja driving back and forth down route Irish. And suddenly they think they think they're a Middle East geopolitical expert. And I served in Afghanistan four times as Intel guy. I studied it a lot. But in grad school, I had people in my class who were Afghans and Pakistanis. Right. So chances are they know a good bit more about it than I did just based on my, my limited experience. So it drives me nuts when, whenever a vet tries to use their status as a veteran to talk about something that they really don't know what they're talking about.
0: It's a really good point. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, I don't think it's overstating the case to say every vet should have humility and a good sense of self-awareness Absolutely. of what they know and, and what the left-right limits are of their experience. Um, I want to personalize this a little bit. Jeff, talk to me about how you came to West Point and what your kind of operating system was there. What was your um, – how much did that motivate you to this assignment? What did you find were the challenges teaching kids? Uh, what were the uh, the pleasures, the joys of it?
1: So that's kind of funny that you mentioned that. Um, so I had a very non-traditional path, right? Um, and Charlie and I were talking about this before the podcast this morning. Like, I mean, I I, I did my undergrad online um, before online school was a thing. You know, I just I ended up with a bunch of college credits and I was like, oh hey, I'm pretty close. So I uh, um, did an undergrad basically by mail almost. Um, with the university of Alabama. And then I really wasn't going to do any more education. And I was getting to the end of my command time as a captain. And I was talking to a good friend of mine who was a graduate of West Point. I said, Hey, what are you, what are you doing when we get out of here? We're in the 82nd and we were doing, you know, all kinds of great God and country kind of stuff. And so I'm sitting in his office and I'm like, man, what are you doing next? He goes, Oh, I'm going to go to West Point. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. I said, I wish I could do that. But you know, I didn't graduate from there. And he looked at me and he said, you're an idiot. And I said, what do you mean? He said, half the people that teach there didn't, didn't go to West Point. I was like, really? And so I ended up applying and uh, um, it just so happened that Colonel Casey Haskins was the director of military intelligence or director of the uh, Department of Military Instruction here at the time. And he had been my brigade commander at one point mm-hmm. when I was a young officer or a, or a fresh officer. And um, he saw my packet come across and he pulled it into the into the brigade, brigade tactical department, which set me up to go to, to, go to Columbia. So Um, fast forward uh, about a year later and I'm driving up here to West Point and I, I'd never been here before, never once in my life. And, um, I tell people the story of driving a U-Haul truck up Interstate 95 from Fort Bragg and seeing the city and Manhattan and then, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden I'm in the wilderness (laughs) and, and you're up at West Point Point, you're like 45 minutes from the city and it's crazy. And so I had no understanding or no expectation. I, I didn't know what I was getting into and, so we start Columbia, and we're going through our master's program. And again, about the 25 officers, I'd say about 10 of us were non-West Point grads, and I was the only OCS prior enlisted guy. Mm-hmm. And so I used to joke that I was a quota that I was a quota baby because I was old, I was OCS, and I did all my education non non traditional. And um, towards the end of our grad school program, we got assigned our cadet companies that we were going to be um responsible for and I went down to this dingy basement in one of the cadet barracks and w- and met my company for the first time and none of us the cadets or me had any idea how to relate to the other one I hadn't been a grad yeah. so I didn't know anything about what they were going yeah. through I mean I knew based on you know talking to other people but like I had no uh experience point to go okay I understand where these kids are in their journey they didn't know anything about me other than I was coming in with a bunch of scary badges And that that's the only thing they could define me by is they had never seen a guy at their level. They had never seen a guy with a bunch of tabs and a bunch of badges and a bunch of combat experience come walking in. So they were partly terrified of this guy just kind of walking in to their company. And then I opened my mouth and I just, what, what my key here at West Point was I just treated them like adults. Yeah. And I treated them like officers because I didn't know how else to do it. Yeah. Right. I wasn't a cadet here, so I didn't understand the ritual hazing and you know, not in a bad way, right. but the ritual hazing that goes on and the, you know, the importance of being, you know, the restrictions as a freshman or a plebe and the and the you know and a senior or a firstie and all this kind of stuff. I just figured, hey, you know what? These kids are all gonna be officers. So I'm gonna treat them like my lieutenants because that's all I knew. And um a lot of the Senior staff here told me initially like, oh, you know, you got to be careful doing that because X, Y, and Z. I was like, well, this is, this is what they're going to be. So this is how I'm going to, this is how I'm going to react to this. Can you tell me um, a little
0: bit about What, what was the danger? What's the, what, what did they think was the, what was the neuroses there behind treating them like so that?
1: The, so the, because if we treat them and, and again, I'm not speaking for everybody, but the, the, a lot of the old grads as they're known here will tell you that if you don't Participate in the ritual hazing, and you don't treat them like cadets, then they're not going to, you know, learn, and they're not going to respect the institution and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And it's to me, it's a, it, it didn't make sense. And there's enough people doing that that I could be different, mm. right? And so, so I, again, I treated them like, like lieutenants until they decided to, to show me that they couldn't right. be treated that way. And then it's like, okay, well now we're going to treat you like a child because, because that's what you're acting like. And the feedback I got from cadets all the time was like man, sir, like you're one of the only guys, you know, tack officer wise, you're, you're one of the only guys that treats us like that. And so they would tell me all kinds of stuff and they would confide in me and they would seek out my advice and all this kind of stuff because I treated them like an adult from day one. And, um, and I, and it generated a lot of great conversations and a lot of great learning and a lot of great growing on me too. Like I, I grew and I, I learned a lot from them because they were able to relax. I, um, a, around me as appropriate. Um, so, so my coming here was, again, it was very non-traditional. Um, I call it accidental in a lot of ways, but it was one of the best assignments I had because I got to influence and model and mold, um, this young generation of officers, which are, shoot, a lot of them are captains now looking at making major, which, you know, like they're going to surpass where I ever was. And, and, and that's a point of pride. And so I think that, um, I think that me inserting myself into the educational process here and part of the education, um, you know, I had to, I had to learn how to deal with professors and I had to learn how to deal with the academic department and, and all, and all this different stuff. And Charlie would tell you, I struggled with it at times when, when, when he and I met and I was at a level where I was dealing with the academic department all the time, I would go to Charlie all the time and say, man, I don't understand how to deal with, you know, Colonel X or Colonel Y because they're, they're in a different realm. And, and so um, it took some adjustment on my side too um but but I think all in all the um, the very fact of putting somebody like me here at West Point is crucial because I don't come from their background and I don't speak their language and I'm not part of their their culture and so an outsider being here is important because it 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 rounds out the education of the cadets that I have
0: contact with. So I know Charlie's wearing an army Jersey right now, and this is the day of the big game. And we are very partisan West Pointish right now, but uh, I don't, so I don't mean for this to become uh, simply a West point infomercial. That said, I think it's worth um, talking a little bit about the specifics of what it means to be a professor and a leader at West point, because I think Jeff, you're right. I, I, I don't think I mean I wasn't an officer um, I don't know anybody that cared about the Army Navy game. I didn't know anybody that knew where West Point like they, they know where West Point is but it's like uh you know it's 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 a it has no meaning. It has no no personal it doesn't generate a lot of personal feelings. And I think the ins and outs of of what life is like at West Point certainly what the teaching and the academics and the expectations are is very foreign to a lot of people even in the army so one thing I just want to clear up to address some of those points Jeff you saw, talked about the the tensions you had with some of the academic staff what is that what's what's the rub between your between your role as a regimental XO and an attack officer and the academics what, what would the, what would the rub be what's an example of that?
1: Okay. So there's, there's three major organizations at at West Point. There's the brigade tactical department, which I was a member of. There is the um, academic department, which is where Charlie was when, when, when we met here. And then there's the athletic department, right? So there's these three giant pillars and each one wants something different from, from the cadets. Mm -hmm. Brigade tactical department wants tacticians and leaders and, and, you know, guys that are going to go be general officers, right? The academic department wants that intelligence, wants that 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 cadet to be smart, to be um, like well-rounded, well-versed in history. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then the athletic department wants wants what what athletic department wants. They they want they want people to be strong, to be fit, to understand fitness, to understand the science behind it and all that. And everybody wants the best for the cadets, right? There's no there's no department out there that 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 wants anything other than the best. So the rub becomes when I'm sitting there as a, you know, infantry officer, special forces, ranger guy, and I want my cadets to do X, Y, and Z. And the academic department comes in and goes, "Uh, we want to take 25 cadets down to the museum of modern art. I'm like, why? (laughs) Okay. And so, and, and that's a generalization, but, but that's, but that's kind of, that's kind of where you, where you run into that thing where it's like the BTD wants to go out and do tactical training. And then you have, you know, a bunch of random instructors that want to take their cadets to something that we would consider to be odd, you know, <laughs> or the athletic department wants, wants, you know, to take the football team for an extra four days to some other, you know, random event. And you're like, good Lord, like these guys aren't going to be playing football in two years. They're going to be leading soldiers. And so, so that's, that's, that's where the, that's where the rub re- really comes in. But to, I, I want to touch base on something you were saying too. This is not a West Point commercial but I think it's important for people that are listening to this podcast who have no connection to West Point to, to understand one thing. So one of the one of the opportunities I had in grad school is we took a West Point history class and it, and and it was it was phenomenal especially for those that, w- that weren't grads here. One of the questions I asked at one point is what does West Point do do in the lean years, right? So so we have lean years in the army where we don't have to recruit very many people and we're drawing down mm-hmm. and we're doing all this kind of stuff. And what this professor told me really stuck with me. So West Point is the throttle valve for the Army Officer Corps, right? Um, ROTC um, comes and goes, OCS comes and goes, but West Point is really the throttle valve. And when when the Army goes into those lean periods, it is an unwritten duty of the West Point graduates to maintain the culture Mm. of the Army through those times. And so... That's. I think that's important to understand that 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 because like you, Chris, I didn't know anything about West Point. I couldn't. I couldn't have told you yeah. where it was on a map. Um, half the people I talk to think it's somewhere in in the Midwest. Yeah. You know, like like they most people don't even know. And I try to tell taxpayers, like, man, you, you should go up and visit this place because you're putting a lot of money in there, and world leaders come here to see how we do, how West Point does things. But the important part for the army is that kind of unwritten rule that. That you know, like in the '70s, and I think we're about to be in that drawdown period. Of time here now that Afghanistan's over, um, the the responsibility to maintain the culture of the U.S. Army falls on those West Point officers, and they don't even know it. Like it's not even a stated sure. thing, but but that's that's the way that West Point acts. And I think that that's important to to, to understand the importance of the institution is not just putting out smart graduates and people that wear yeah. rings that you know that have a secret handshake that gets them. Per- promoted ahead of peers and all this kind of stuff That was a joke. <laughs> um but 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 it's 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 this it's this cultural
2: is it is it a joke though jeff
1: well that's for another <laughs> podcast <it> <laughs> we'll talk about ring no- we'll do a ring knocker pod- podcast at some point but uh no the i think it's important to understand that that there is a an important cultural aspect to west point as far as the army and we have to have the institution to maintain that when we get into those really lean and very troubling times, again, I think of the 1970s army and probably the 2020s army that, that we're going to see in, in, in very short order.
0: So Charlie, it sounds like a lot more trips to, uh, to MoMA, to the museum of modern art should be in in order. Keep that army culture strong.
2: (laughs) I am pretty sure that was a deliberate dig at me from when (laughs) I was on the academic side, I was thinking about, I was like, I think I actually did that to Jeff once. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh, so like, like Jeff, Chris, you know that I, I didn't go to school here. I started off in military junior college and then went on from there. But uh, I came here to West Point when I was in fifth grade One of the NCOs that worked for me had a brother who was a cadet. So we arranged a boondoggle to come up here my first time visiting many, many years ago. And that was when I was like, wow, this place is beautiful. Wait, you mean I could come back here as a non-grad and teach? It's amazing. Yeah. And I put that back burner for a while and then, Like I said, Iraq and Afghanistan kicking off, going back and forth all the time. I think it was 2008 when I kind of had the realization that we were never going to be allowed to do what it would take to win an insurgency with sanctuary in in Iran and in Pakistan and things like that. And watching folks get blown up and and all this and and want to make a difference somehow. And I I thought I could make a difference to West Point. So I applied and I got rejected multiple times uh, for Mm. various reasons. Uh, part of it was I was very senior. They want kind of junior captains that are wrapping up command. They don't want old men typically like Jeff and me coming in there. So I got rejected. Why is that? Well,
0: they don't think you'll well, be able to relate? It's a career thing.
2: So they don't want people uh, to come and stay. Their ideal person is a rotator, comes in, and bounces back off in the forest, goes, goes and makes four stars, and he helps propagate the system, like Petraeus, General Petraeus, and uh, McMaster and those types of guys. Uh, Petraeus taught in, soci- in social sciences in and McMaster was history. So they uh, they want that. That's the preferred model. So they don't want old dudes who they can't get the most out of. So I actually came here as a lieutenant colonel by the time it was all said and done. So I came in the game pretty late. And I, I'm i not a, a cheerleader for West Point. We have problems here. But I, I've been teaching here for seven years. And I wouldn't be doing that if I didn't think this place was special. So in my career, probably like a lot of people's careers, the best and worst leaders I've ever had were West, West Point grads. And one of the things I'm trying to do here is to help reduce the number of bad grads that get out into the force because they can have a very a negative impact and increase the number of good grads. And I love it here. West Point's been good to me. I think this is good for the nation. Um, one one of my daughters wants to go to school here when she graduates. So I hope it works out. And I think this is a great place to be because of the people, because of the mission. And it's very unique. Um like Jeff and I, we became friends, even though we were across the street, so to speak, you got Athens versus Sparta, Sparta's BTD, where he worked in right. Athens the academic department, literally separated by a street and never the two shall meet. Well, they made me meet Jeff and through summer training. And I didn't want to do it. I, I went out there. I was like, I'm, I'm a lieutenant colonel. I'm 42 years old at this point. I don't want to do summer training. It's, it's hot and there's bugs and, you know, I want to go home in my bed. But I got out there and I met Jeff. And I'm like, this guy's actually really cool. He's really funny. And we hit it off. And it ended up having the, the positive externality of whenever I needed something from BTD, like when uh, I would take my, tr- my students on a trip to Yale and they denied our alcohol consumption ETP, I would call Jeff. I'm like, come on, man. And he'd either say, let me make a phone call or say, hey, this is why that rules in effect, quit quit being stupid. And like he said, you know, he could call me. He's like, why why are you asking, why is this you? You know, it wouldn't be me. They're my boys because they're on the academic side, right? Why are you wanting to do this thing? It's like, well, here's here's why this is significant. Or, no, you should totally deny that. That's kind of stupid. So it worked out really well. And I do like it here. I encourage people to come by and visit. Just like Jeff said, it's beautiful. Jeff and I are going to walk down to a football game. And uh, watch uh, West Point beat the crap out of Miami of Ohio, not Miami, Florida. Miami of Ohio, uh, just like they took it to Connecticut last week. So, a great place to be, and and very grateful to be here, Chris. Charlie,
0: what's what's your biggest regret though as a teacher? What's the th- what was or not regret? Let me say, what's your what, biggest challenge as a teacher?
2: So, I always try to keep myself keep everything neutral. Uh, I like to I like to guide the discussion through the Socratic method. I had too many instructors in grad school and, and even undergrad have a have a have have an agenda that was contrary to what I think we ought to be doing as an instructor. So, of course, I have my own, my own opinions on things, especially with the way Afghanistan ended and with, with politics and stuff like that. But for me, it's to keep them engaged and challenged in a neutral way. So the cadets that I'm teaching, I'm teaching a capstone course. It's new in the Department of Military Instruction called Leadership in Future War. This is the first time that that this is a non-pilot version of this course so there's a lot of challenges with the new course but it's also challenging to to work with these cadets who are seniors now they're first and they're very thoughtful and they're well read and it's hard to teach smart kids it's hard because they'll challenge you and they'll have done the reading closer than you did so this these guys keep me academically sharp and also help me relate to my children because they keep me abreast of the latest jargon. So I'm just an old awkward dad. And I'm just, I'm i I'm a less awkward dad. How about that?
0: So you have a good dab. Do you dab?
2: I, I think we're done with dabbing. Is dabbing I over? See, I I'm,
0: I'm, 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 I missed it. Yeah. I don't know. I it.
2: Yeah. Chris, you need to catch up. Uh, I, I know. So over. I
0: know. My, my six year old's not getting, not giving me the Intel that I need about, uh, he's not there yet to really feed me what I need culturally. um, Okay. So listen, I, I don't want to keep us too far over an hour because obviously Miami of Ohio is waiting, but, uh, (laughs) Charlie's flashing his army Jersey. I I really, if we ever did video for this show, this would be a worthy picture for everybody to see that Charlie's just beaming with army pride right now. I, I, I can't deal with it. Even as army, I can't deal with it. It's too much pride. Um, Jeff, I didn't do. Uh, we didn't do this bit of housekeeping before the show, so I'm just going to put you on the spot now. Is there anything uh, that you want to give a shout out to? Any organization we want to talk about today?
1: So, uh, shout out to an organization. Um, no, not specifically. Um, you know, the uh, my typical thing is support your local law enforcement officers, guys and gals out there doing do, doing America's work. Um, be cognizant, be vigilant. You know, we got a lot of stuff going on. A lot of Strangeness going on in this world. A lot of people coming into the country from God knows where, and uh, with the you know fall of Afghanistan and everything else, um, it's only a matter of time before bad things are knocking on our doorstep. And the only way we're going to get through that is to be good human beings, good people, good neighbors. Um, doesn't matter if your neighbor supports you know one political ideology or the next. Um, we're not going to we're not going to get any better if we can't. You know, reach across across the street and 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 you know, be good neighbors. So, like I said, no specific organization, no 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 real idea to push. Just be good people and uh, keep on your toes.
0: Is it worth mentioning that there's a lot of chaos at the Texas border right now, and Jeff Marshburn happens to be at West Point instead and not in East Texas. (laughs) Coincidence (laughs) or not, you decide. Exactly. I may have been asked to
1: leave
2: Texas for a while. <laughs> oh,
0: know. Well, there's that too. I wasn't even going there, but yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Duly noted. Um, Charlie, what's going on in second mission?
2: Yeah. So this will be over by the time that the episode airs, but I just want to put a shout out to Iman Kofel and bet to vet up in Boston. I'll be going up there on Monday to represent Havoc Journal and second mission. Uh, West Plum is kind enough to give me a couple of days of leave. I'm going to go up there to this event at Clary's in Boston and just help vets process Afghanistan and other things they've been through. This is one of the things I really want to get second mission and Havoc involved in is helping vets, um, helping them find their second mission after service, like Jeff mentioned. And also the, the last thing I want to mention, I want to give a shout out to, a shout out to your project, the Savage Wonder. Uh, I was thinking about the article that I wrote about the loneliest of the Military Professional, which is going to be coming out soon. And I encourage you to listen to the podcast, check out Loneliest of, of the Military Professional when it goes live on Savage Wonder. If you want to get some perspectives on what it's like to to go to war and then go to school, uh, I think that that would be a good summary for you. So, Chris, I think those are the two things I wanted to highlight: vet to vet and Savage Wonder, loneliness of the military professional, and uh, Go Army, beat my be Miami. <laughs> and I'll, I'm gonna
0: I'm gonna jump on that bandwagon uh, as well. Um, you kind of took the words right out of my mouth. Vet to vet, obviously, will be on Monday. I'll be going up. Uh, not with Charlie, but we'll meet up there and uh, and we'll be doing a show live with Iman. It'll be a uh, Marvel DC crossover episode of his Project Sapient podcast and this podcast. So we'll have an extra episode coming to you guys in the dangerously near future. Um, probably won't be concurrent with this one, but maybe a day or two later, uh, we'll have that episode produced and out as well. And then, yeah, thanks for the plug on Savage Wonder to everyone else. That's my plug again this week. Um, Savage Wonder is the literary blog of the Veterans Repertory Theater. Uh, you are more than welcome to sign up for it. It's free, and you can sign up and get uh, literary content delivered to your inbox every day at SavageWonder.substack.com. Or, or and you can also listen to the Savage Wonder podcast, which is a one-on-one long-form conversation. Uh, that we hold with someone with kind of a rare breed, those that have a foot in the world of the artist and those that have a foot in the world of the warrior. So finding those warrior artists amongst us and talking to them about how those worlds intersect, collide, the tension between them, and how that individual has managed to uh, handle both of them. Okay, Jeff, Charlie, guys, thanks for being here. Hey, Hey, thanks for the invite as always. My pleasure. To everyone else, if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review would be dynamite. You can say whatever you want to us. We welcome your questions, your comments, your Snyder marks. If you could attach them to a five-star review, that would be deeply appreciated. Show notes will be available at the havoc.podbean.com or in my accompanying article at Havoc Journal or wherever you're listening to this podcast. There will also be alibis for anything I misstated, anything that I – misspoke, anything that needs more context, anything that would cause me to wake up at two in the morning and go, why did I say it like that or in that manner? That offer always, as always, is extended to our guests as well, although generally nobody takes me up on that because I'm the only one that tends to say things that need to be rectified in writing after the show. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Jeff Marshburn and Charlie Faint and we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc.
2: Jeff doesn't know this, but he's got a fire pit table to assemble before we go to the game. (laughs) What? (laughs) First I make him do a podcast, and now I'm going to make him do furniture bill for me. I'm from Texas. We pay... We pay a certain
1: demographic to do work like that.
0: <laughs> so much, this is what you get for getting "quote unquote" free lodging, right, Jeff? Yeah, I know. I know. Right? Always, always, always <laughs> strings attached. Yeah. <laughs>